Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Please take your Bibles and open it up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This chapter is one of the major end time prophecies. Speaking about the rapture of the church. And we'll talk about that a little later as we get to the end of uh, chapter 4. But the title of tonight's message in 1 Thessalonians 4 is the future that focuses the now. The future that focuses the now. has nothing to do with Michael J. Fox. Nothing with back, it's not a sequel to Back to the Future. But it's a future that focuses on the now. And hopefully you'll see that as we um, get through the teaching tonight. Remember in 1 Thessalonians... Paul was in Thessalonica for a very short period of time, probably just a few months, maybe a little more than just a few months. In the book of Acts, he preached in a Jewish synagogue on three successive Sabbath days in Thessalonica. What we're going into tonight now is one of the last two chapters of the first book he wrote to the Thessalonican Christians. But understand that what was taking place besides pagans who had received the Lord, there was also Jewish converts. Paul, being a Jew, met them where they were, and they were coming to Christ. And this was ticking off other Jewish people. And they were causing problems for Paul in Thessalonica. Some had followed him from Philippi, if you remember, where he was in jail and he was beaten along with um, uh, Silas in prison. So they had left about a hundred mile journey to go from Philippi to Thessalonica. So now they're in Thessalonica. It's a brand new, brand new believers, brand new church that Paul is uh, being used to start up. But what's happening is some of these uh, upset Jewish people were causing problems and they were starting persecution. So Paul left. He left Thessalonica so the persecution wouldn't be taken out on these new Christians. So he goes down to the southern part of the area and he sends Timothy back up to Thessalonica to see how they're doing, to see how the church is going to encourage them, to urge them to keep the faith. And he came back with a great report that they were keeping the faith in midst of the pagan religions, in midst of the persecution, they were staying strong. And it's just like us, you know, the things we face in our life today. The Lord's encouragement to us through letters like this is keep on keeping on. Keep on running the race. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus. He's the author. He's the perfecter of our faith. 
you know, he's going to make it happen. We just got to keep running. Like uh, Pastor Paul had said, Job had mentioned, that though he slay us, we're still going to praise you, Jesus. doesn't matter what comes our way. We're going to stay still, still stay true to you. Because you're our God. You're our Savior. You're our Lord. We're one day closer to meeting him face to face than we were yesterday. You know, we want to be getting ready. God is always getting us ready. You know, when we get in his word and we're praying to him, we're, we're getting ready for that glorious day. Never forget that. We're only passing through. All right, so let's jump in to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It says, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now, in those, those first two verses, Paul is, is urging these guys and girls to be steadfast. Not to be blown by any wind and doctrine. To stay true to the course of your faith. To what you've been taught. By example and by God's word. You've got to remember, Paul was there. Paul was there with Silas and with Timothy. They were examples. They came all the way thousands of miles. You know, they were away from home for over a year because they loved these people. They knew that God had a calling on their life, just like you and I have a calling on our life. And he wants us to be steadfast and movable. You know, we're on the rock, so we're like rocks. Nothing can move us because we're standing on the firm foundation that is no one else but Jesus Christ our Lord. That work abounding in the Lord, just overflowing in the things of the Lord. What's the work of the Lord? It's every breath we take, every person we meet, every situation that comes our way. That's God allowing that into your life, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. And we just want to be overflowing with God's Holy Spirit. He's allowing us to go through these things. He's allowing people to come into our life for us to rub off on the Jesus in us touching other lives. So we just want to be abounding in in the work of the Lord, knowing that anything we do in the Lord, what happens? Never comes back void. There's always something good that's going to come as a result of us doing something in the name of Jesus even though you might not see or get the result right away or see the fruit. Just doing it unto the Lord should be enough. Yeah, it's nice to get words of encouragement. It's nice to get a pat on the back. It's nice to see somebody come to the Lord. But if that doesn't happen, you're doing it unto Jesus. You're just being faithful to him. You're just giving it to him. If you give of yourself, what happens? You burn out. If you go with your own energies, right? But if you're doing it in the Spirit, if you're doing it in the name of Jesus, if you're doing it walking with the Holy Spirit, you're given from the Lord's well. And what happens when you do it from the Lord's well? Never runs out. There's always an abundance. There's never an end to what the Lord can give you in his name. 
In Mark chapter 12, verse 29, Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. The second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these two. Everything is wrapped up in loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then loving your neighbor as yourself. When you do those two things, you're fulfilling all the law of God. Now I get a question. How do you do in the first commandment, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. How are you doing? How am I doing? You know, with that commandment. Are you loving the Lord 24-7? Are you spending time with Him? Are you praying throughout your day for the situations, the people that you pass? Um, are you putting your heart and your soul and your emotions into it? Are you putting your mind, are you renewing your mind every day? by meditating, even if it's just on one verse of the scripture. Just one verse. Or maybe just this, Jesus, help me. <laughs> Jesus, just help me. Meditate on that all day. That's a lifetime meditation. Right? Jesus, just help me. Jesus, I love you. Whatever it is. Keep that in the forefront of your mind. And then... As you get into God's word, remember your mind's being renewed. Your mind's being strengthened. And it says with all your strength. All your strength. And the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. I don't know about you, but that takes a supernatural effort. Right? We can't do it of, on our own. Talk about burnout. Trying to love somebody that is unlovable. It takes the love of God changing our hearts to love that person, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Because we like the selfies. It's all about me. No, God wants to change our heart. It's all about that person, that other person that he died for. And as we know how much we've been forgiven, we should be able to forgive others and love them. And you'll see your heart change as you spend more time with the Lord and the fruit of your efforts will be very evident to you. Because that person that was uh, pain is, <clears throat> is now someone that you love. Let's take a look at verses 3 through 7. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Now, in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, which is the next 
the second letter to the Thessalonians, it says, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation, chose each one of you for salvation. Through sanctification, a big word, all it means is to be set apart. To just be set apart. You're holy. You're sanctified. He's setting you apart. And in the scriptures it says, every moment of every day, God is sanctifying you. He's working on you. Because he is that author and perfecter of your faith. He's changing you. He's changing your uh, attitudes towards others. Towards situations. He's getting rid of the junk in your heart that takes time. You know, we're works under construction. God is always working on us. He's never through with us. Doesn't matter if you're a brand new Christian or you've been a Christian for decades. He is not through with any one of us. It's a continual work. And he's doing this sanctification by his Holy Spirit. And belief in the truth. What is truth? Pilate asked. What does the Bible say truth is? It says Jesus is truth. His word is truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No man, woman, boy, girl gets to the Father except through him. He's everything. He's above all like the song was tonight we sang. He's above all. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, it says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If you were raised with Christ, seek those things that are above. Right? Many of you have been baptized. And remember what the pastors have said. Pastor Joe, if he put you under the water. You're dying to yourself. You're rising to new life in Christ. The old is dead. It's drowned. The new is resurrected. It's new life in Christ. So now you're raised with Christ. You're seeking those things which are above. For Christ died for you and your life is now hidden in God. And as we continue in our walk with the Lord, guess what? Those things that God has were hidden in Christ come out. We start understanding more and more. We know more of ourselves as a believer in Christ a year later than we did a year ago. There's more that God is revealing to us about ourselves and about those people that are in our lives. And notice in these verses 3 to 7, Paul is talking about This is God's will, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Oh my goodness. Sexual immorality was bad back in those days. It's galloping these days. It's all over the place. Doesn't matter where you go, right? Whether it's a radio, whether it's a movie, a TV, a commercial, a magazine, a billboard, it's in our face all the time. So how do we keep ourselves pure in a sexually immoral world? Well, We hide God's word in our heart. We think on those things that are pure. We don't get caught up. God has delivered us from the old man and the old woman. We are now new creatures in Christ. The old is gone. The new is here. He's got us going forward, not in a cesspool or quicksand pulling us under. 
that e- verse 4, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel, his own body, his own person, in sanctification and honor, being set apart. Tonight, you set yourself apart. This part of your Wednesday, you set up yourself apart to hear God's word, to worship him, to fellowship with each other. You're setting yourself apart. You're knowing how to take care of your vessel, yourselves, your heart, your mind. This is a good thing. But hopefully Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, before we meet again on Sunday, you're taking care of business every day. You're praying, you're reading his word, you know? You're not waiting for one or two days a week because it's a relationship with you that he seeks. This is awesome. This is necessary. But there's nothing like one-on-one with Jesus, right? There's nothing like that. And he knows you by name. He loves you. If you were the only person in the whole world, guess what? He would have went to the cross just for you. How awesome is that? How personal is that? And notice, remember, here in Thessalonica, there was all these temples where they would go to worship the false gods through sexual activity with the temple prostitutes. And here is this new believers that are worshiping a risen Christ, not listening to the doctrine of demons, the teaching of of false teachers and, and demons, but they're worshiping and learning about the one true God. The same God, thousands of years later, that you and I have fallen in love with and learning about. And then it says here, verse 6, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. You know, just like today, people take advantage of other people. You know, people take advantage of weaker believers. May it never be so. It's our job as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, part of the family of God, to encourage and build up and come alongside of each other, especially if we see a new believer or a person that's hurting in any manner. We're trying to pick them up and encourage them and mentor them. And I love that verse 7, you know, just for God did not call us to uncleanness, but he calls us in holiness. We serve a holy God. There's not going to be anybody in heaven who's not holy. Everybody's going to be holy, covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. How cool is that? That's so awesome. Let's take a look at verse 8. Therefore, he who rejects this, does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Rejects what? Rejects everything that's gone before this verse. They don't believe it. Oh, that's good for you. You know, I'm glad you found peace. No, it doesn't work that way. This isn't a multiple choice. There's only one God. There's only one Jesus. There's only one Holy Spirit. He who rejects the things that are here in Scripture doesn't reject man. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting God himself. 
In 1 Samuel 8, 7, it says, And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. And this was the period of the judges, okay, where there was a judge ruling over Israel. And the people didn't want God to rule through the judges. They wanted a a man to rule over them, a king, just like the pagan nations had. So this is Samuel the prophet being told by the Lord, hey, don't, you know, whatever the people want, let's give it to them. They haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. And we see that, don't we, in our universe today? The governments, the kings, the presidents. We just need God ruling over us. We don't need any man. And one day, that's going to happen. King Jesus. Just one. The only one ruling over us. And notice, God has given us His Holy Spirit. How important is you and I having the Holy Spirit? We can't understand any of this if it wasn't for God's Holy Spirit opening up your eyes and your ear and your ears and hearts to Him. Great thing. Great God that we serve. Luke chapter 12, verse 10 says, And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. When the testimony of Jesus Christ is fully and finally rejected, one has truly blasphemed the Holy Spirit and essentially called him a liar in respect to his testimony about Jesus. Those who reject Jesus, in a settled sense, are guilty of this sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Simply means to stop rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit and bringing us to Jesus. Now, you might know someone in your family, in your workplace, that doesn't have any time for Jesus. Oh, you're one of those Jesus people. You're one of those Jesus freaks. Pray for them. That's a person God has put in your life. Just pray for them. Regardless of how arrogant, obnoxious, or non-caring they might be, pray for them. God can work on their heart. God can save them. Maybe it's a prodigal, son or daughter. You know, Maybe it's somebody in your family that's older. Just pray for them. God died for them as much as he died for you and me. Let's take a look at verses 9 and 10. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so towards all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. How do we increase? We heard that increasing, you know, that overflowing, that abounding. That abounding. God, Paul is um, urging these people in Thessalonica to abound in their love for one another, that brotherly love. And it says, you don't have any need that I should write, you, write this to you, for you are taught by God to love one another, just like you and I are taught by God to love one another. It's one of these, those two major commandments, to love your neighbor as yourself. 
And we, you know, laughed about how hard that is sometimes to do that. In 1 John 4, 8, it says, He who does not love does not know God. He who does not love does not know God. For God is love. You must know God in order to be able to love like God. You have to know how much God loves you individually in order to put that love on somebody else, that God love. Think about that. Think about how we need to love our Lord and Savior in order for us to get that supernatural love from Him to love someone else. And God is telling us through 1 Thessalonians that we need to abound more and more in that love for each other and for others. What does the scripture say? They'll know we are Christians by our love. But it's a God love. It's not a human love. It's a supernatural love that comes from a supernatural God pouring out His supernatural Holy Spirit in each of you in order to do that. How does a Corrie ten Boom be in a concentration camp where most of her family was killed How does she go and forgive the guard who killed them? That isn't human love. That is supernatural love. That's that love that God wants to bestow on you and just have it overflowing in your life and in my life. Let's take a look at verses 11 and 12. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you that you may walk properly towards those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. That word aspire, okay, in verse 11, is to labor, it's to strive, it's to study. I want to underline that a hundred times, that word study. As you study God's word, as you study God's word, you are renewing your mind, but God is changing you from the inside out. There's a transformation taking place on the inside of your spirit by God himself for you to overflow to those people in your life. And I have... I guess it's great news. You never arrive there. It's something that you go after. It's not striving in a a worldly sense. It's something that you desire. It's something that you're laboring for. Lord, I want to get there. I'm I'm connecting with you. I'm abiding in you, Lord. I want to study you. I want to know more of you, Jesus. Reveal yourself more to me. Show me who you are. I only know this much of you. I want to know more of you. And in our lifetime, we can never learn everything about Jesus. We can never get to know him enough. That's something we want to all just grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24, it says, And whatever you do... Do it heartily, as to the Lord and not to men, 
knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Jesus. And that's maybe something we just got to keep remembering. Yeah, remember the pat on the back is cool or that encouraging word is awesome. But even if that doesn't come, you're doing it unto the Lord. You're serving Him. You're going to receive your reward from Him. You know, that pat on the back is only temporary. But what God gives you, what He builds into you, what He reveals to you is eternal. It's eternal. And then in verse 12, that you may walk properly towards those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. It's easy when we're in here. It's easy when we're among ourselves, right, to get along with each other. But it's when we leave this place, when we go to work tomorrow, or if you have to go to work tonight, or there's something that comes up where you're interacting with other people that might be strangers, well, that's going to be the test of where we are in our relationship, not with those people, but who? Our relationship with Jesus Christ. Because that's going to be the overflow to the people. That always reveals where we're at. I always like to call it the dipstick test. You know? It's like that oil. You see where the oil is. You see where the Holy Spirit is working in your life by how full you are or how short you are in dealing with those situations and people. Let's take a look at verses 13 to 17. Now this is where it changes gears a little bit. And it's a very, um, like I said, this is one of the major or the major verses talking about the rapture of the church. Not the second coming. And one of the things I know as pastors here, we want to encourage you to study on your own. You know, this is something that we're going to briefly hit upon tonight, but for you to study it on your own is much, even more enriching. And to write down questions and to interact and keep each other sharp and to ask us the things that maybe you're not understanding or you're growing in your faith and you want to know more about it. So verses 13 to 17. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Now, I just want to stop here for a second before continuing to 17. One of the things that were happening since Paul had left Thessalonica and went down further south from Macedonia area, was that some of the people that were alive had passed away. They died. So some of the young believers were saying, well, what happens when the Lord comes back to the people who have died? These new believers. What's going to take place? So Paul, in his letter, is covering that now. So he doesn't want them to be ignorant. He wants to shed light on what's in their heart about their loved ones who have passed on. But notice what Paul says. He doesn't say those who have died. He doesn't say those who have passed on. He says something very comforting. Because I know in a couple hours that bed is going to feel awesome. 
when we lay down and fall asleep. He says there in verse 13, for those who have fallen asleep, those loved ones in the Lord have just fallen asleep, but they're in the presence of the God. Their bodies have fallen asleep. Their bodies are gone. But the Bible tells you and me that when we're absent from our bodies, we are present with the Lord. I always say this with the blinking. How many times have we blinked since we've been in here? No one has been in total darkness. Nobody blinks and closes their eyes for a long period of time. You blink, I don't even lose sight of you. Just like that person who has fallen asleep. They wake up a blink, in a blink and they're right there with Jesus Christ. How awesome is that moment? So, falling asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. We've all lost loved ones, or most of us have, have lost loved ones, people we loved. This is your verse. This is your promise. This is our hope. We're going to see them again. They're, they're better than they've ever been. They're whole, complete, the way God meant it to be from the beginning. We're the ones that are struggling. They're doing okay. We're on our way to meet them. And this is what Paul is saying. I don't want you to be ignorant. Lest you sorrow as others. We don't have to sorrow. Do we miss them? Absolutely. But we're going to see them later. We're going to see them later. We're a day closer to seeing them again than we were when we came in here or were here yesterday. Verse 14, for... If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, do you believe that Jesus died and rose again? No? Yeah? Right? Do you believe that Jesus died and rose? Absolutely. Absolutely. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus, those who have died. Notice what he's saying here, that God will bring with him Those who sleep in Jesus. And where is he going to bring them? That's what we're going to be seeing in this next few minutes. Verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. You can take God's word for it. It's the word of the Lord. Liar, liar, pants on fire, or is he a God of his word? He's a God of his word. What he says is truth. Because he is truth. There is no other. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, this period of time, Jesus has been crucified. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. The time that we're talking about right now is the church age. You and I are in the church age right now. 
The Thessalonians were in the church age. And what Paul is saying, there's going to come a time that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who were believers in Jesus will rise. Their bodies will be changed. And where are they going? What will happen? What do you mean they're going to rise first? Well, look at 17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. There's going to be a group of people one day, hopefully it's you and me, that will never have to fall asleep, that will be caught up in the air with those people, our loved ones, who will join us in the clouds where we're going to meet Jesus. Now, this is not the second coming that we're talking about. This is the a rapture, and I'm going to get into that a little more in a few minutes. But this is when Jesus comes back to meet us in the clouds. The second coming is when we're coming back with him to the earth. So there's a series of things that we're going to be a part of. We'll either be part of those people that fall asleep and meet Jesus in the air, or we'll be alive when it takes place meeting Jesus in the air. But either way, we'll all be coming back with him one day to this earth as a second coming. But right now, what we're looking at is the rapture of the church. In the previous three chapters, chapters 1, 2, and 3 of 1 Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Paul writes, And to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now remember, these were new believers. Some churches say, well, we shouldn't get into the whole thing with eschatology and the end times. You know, we're a brand new church. Hey, Paul went right after the young believers. He was telling them in the first chapter, hey, we're waiting from Jesus from heaven because we were told by the angels that just as you saw Jesus go up, he's going to come down. So they're waiting for Jesus. They're waiting for that time, and they believed it was going to be in their lifetime. They lived as if Jesus was coming back today. So should you and I. So should we all. It keeps us alert. It keeps us sharp. It keeps us ready. Now notice, Paul is saying in that first chapter, verse 10, to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus is no longer on the cross. He's alive. He's alive. We saw a movie, Risen. What a great perspective, right, if you saw the movie. If you haven't seen the movie, Risen, you can get, I think, in Redbox. Or it could be on demand but it showed it from a Roman soldier's perspective, the resurrection. From one of the enemy's perspectives. And notice, there is a wrath coming at the end of that verse 10 of 1 Thessalonians 1. There's a wrath coming. 
there's, a, there's God's wrath that's going to be thrown out on this earth. In 1 Thessalonians 2.19, it says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Paul is writing to these young believers saying, what's our hope? He's saying to them, what is our hope? What is our joy? What is our crown? Well, here's the answer, Thessalonians, that it's going to be seeing you in the presence of Jesus Christ when he comes. Think about that. He is telling those believers that, hey, we're going to see you again when Jesus comes back. We're going to be reunited with you. If it's not here on this earth, we're going to see it in the clouds. And I can say that in God's word, in the name of Jesus, we're going to see each other again. If we leave here and never come back, we're going to see each other again. In the clouds with Jesus Christ. That is one heck of a trip. And if you're fearful of heights, you won't be. He'll take care of that too. You'll be okay. In 1 Thessalonians 3.13, so that he may establish, and this is another thing that Paul is writing, he's, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Just as he is trying to establish the hearts of the Thessalonians that they are blameless in holiness. You've been forgiven. This is a letter to you and to me. You are blameless in holiness because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. His sanctifying work at the cross. Yeah, but Pastor Vinny, you know, I just blew it today at work. You know, where something happened yesterday, I just blew my witness. Yeah, but you know what? When Jesus died on the cross, all your sins and all my sins were still in the future. He died for you. While we were sinners, He died for us. So all those sins of your past, all the present sins, all the future sins are forgiven in Christ Jesus. All you have to do is confess your sins that when you blew it. And He's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You restore your fellowship by talking to your Abba Father, your Dad. Dad, I'm sorry I blew it. Help me in that situation next time. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 19 says, Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also just empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Just wasting our time if Jesus isn't risen from the dead. But he's alive. He's alive. 
Now, rapturo is the Latin of the Greek word harpazo. Harpazo, the Greek in the New Testament, is the word to be caught up, to be carried by force, to be snatched out or away, to take out violently. So this word rapture, you can't find the word rapture in the scriptures. However, you can find the word in the Greek, harpazo, which is to be caught up, to be carried off by force. The Latin word for harpazo is rapturo, where we get the word rapture from. This promise of the rapture is to the New Testament church. You're the New Testament church. It's a promise to you and I. And I had said before, Jesus comes for believers in the air. The second coming, Jesus comes with believers to the earth. There's been some examples in the scriptures of raptures. Enoch, who was a Gentile, he was a type of a Gentile, raptured before the flood with Noah. He was walking with God, then he was no more. He was just taken. He was snatched out. The word harpazo, if you look it up, is right there. Philip, remember, there was a, a eunuch in the book of Isaiah who was, re, was reading the book of Isaiah. And God sent Philip there to help him understand what he was reading. And Philip baptized him. And then all of a sudden, Philip was raptured. He was violently pulled away and, and brought to another spot. John 14, 1-4 says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. And they said, well, Jesus, what is the way? Well, we don't know the way. And that's where Jesus said, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. But Jesus has gone on to prepare a dwelling place for all believers. 2,000 years ago, developing that dwelling place for you and for me. Now, another great prophetic uh, picture is to be found in the Jewish wedding traditions of Jesus' time. After the betrothal, the groom would return to his father's house to prepare a wedding chamber for his bride. He would return for his bride at an unexpected moment. So the bride had to be ready constantly, always looking for the coming of the bridegroom. When he returned, he would take his bride back to his father's house, to the chamber he had prepared. He and his bride would then be sealed in the chamber for seven days. When they emerged, a great wedding feast would be celebrated. Cool. Beautiful little picture of the wedding. Now watch. Likewise, Jesus has returned to heaven to prepare a place for you, his bride, the church. When he returns for his bride... He will take her to his, his father's heavenly home. There he will remain with his bride for seven years. 
while that seven years is going on, the Bible says there's going to be a tribulation period going on this earth. The period will end with the marriage supper of the Lamb, described in Revelation 19. Thus, seven days in the wedding chamber point prophetically to the seven years that Jesus and his bride will remain in heaven during the tribulation. In Matthew 25, 1 to 13, and I'll just pick a, um, just a quick verse here. The five virgins who are prepared for the bridegroom's arrival are rewarded. They had oil in their lamps, if you remember. But the other five weren't prepared. They didn't have oil in their lamps. They wanted to borrow the oil from the five who were ready. You and I are those five virgins who are prepared. We are full of the Holy Spirit, type of oil. In the, in the Bible is the Holy Spirit. So you always want to be abiding in Christ. You and I always want to be full of the Spirit. We don't want to be empty. And when the Lord comes, where'd everybody go? I wasn't ready. I wasn't abiding in Christ. So Paul is urging these people in this letter to be ready to always look for the coming of Jesus. Matthew 24, 42 says, Therefore, be on the alert, for you don't know which day your Lord is coming. Matthew 24, 44 says, For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Luke 12, 35 and 36 says, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Right now, your lamps are lit. You're in a place. Imagine if right now God came back. Hey, this would be an awesome place to go meet the Lord in the clouds. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. We've been waiting, Jesus. Come quickly. The spirit and the bride say, come. We're waiting, Lord. We're ready right now. Now, we believe here in, in Calvary Chapel, Janesburg, of the pre-trib rapture. It's a concept of the rapture, the, the rapture that allows for the imminence of the Lord's appearing, meaning it could happen at any time. When the rapture is placed at any other point in time, the imminence of the Lord's appearing is destroyed because other prophetic events must happen first. There's nothing that has to happen for God to snatch us away. There's nothing that has to take place prophetically. They talk about the mid-trib rapture or the post-trib. For example, if the rapture is going to occur in the mid-trib, then why should we live looking for the Lord's appearing at any moment? We would be looking instead for an Israeli peace treaty. We would be looking for the rebuilding of a temple. We'd be looking for the revelation of the Antichrist. Then and only then could the Lord appear. But according to the scripture, as you study it, there's nothing that has to take place. The Lord could come right this moment. As I'm closing here, I want you to think of some things. These are things that are supposed to take place. I'm switching a gear for a second. These are some of the things that are supposed to take place before the Lord's second coming. 
Not the rapture, but the second coming. When the Lord comes with us from the heaven to the earth. Okay, one of the things that has already taken place before the second coming of Christ is the Jews return into their ancient homeland. Well, that took place back in 1948. Israel has to be in the world's spotlight. Well, I think, take any paper pretty much. They're right there. The third temple will have, soon have to be built. Right now, there's a train that goes from Ben-Gurion Airport. It goes right to the wall to commute passengers when there's a third temple built that they can visit it coming right from the airport. There are rabbis that are ready to go for the building of the third temple. A week ago, two weeks ago, the Passover, there was a sacrifice of a Passover lamb very close to the Temple Mount. And that was one of the reasons there was some uprising there. Another thing is there has to be a strength of coalition of nature Uh, nations mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39. All these are separate studies, but to get to the point, in Ezekiel 38 and 39, talks about an attack on Israel by the following nations, Russia, Turkey, and Iran. Well, guess who just had a summit a week ago? Russia, Turkey, and Iran. Read your papers, look at the internet, what's going on right now. Things are very hot between those nations and the United States and Israel. Another thing, there's got to be a decline of the United States. No one coming to the aid of Israel. Right now, under the current administration, we are supporting Israel. But what would happen if the church was raptured tonight? Would there be that support of Israel? Probably not. There's a desire in the world for a world leader to take over, to get rid of all these economic problems, to get rid of all the um, chaos, all the division in our world. Another thing that's supposed to take place is the the increase of technology and how fast is technology increasing. Think about Everything that we do pretty much in our society is recorded now. You can't go around a corner without a camera picking up your actions, yet alone being tracked by the devices we have in your pocketbooks or on the side or in your pockets. A world economic crisis is supposed to take place before the second coming. A cashless society is supposed to take place before the second coming. And the last one, this is just one of many, continual problem of plagues and pestilence before the second coming of Christ. Now, how many of those things are going on right now? How close are we to the second coming of Christ just based on those eight or nine things I read? If we're that close to the second coming of Christ, how close are we to the rapture of the church that's supposed to take place before the second coming? We're close. Are we ready? Are we ready to be called up and caught with Jesus in the air? Hopefully the answer to that is yes. And notice how Paul closes this. 
He says in verse 18, Therefore comfort one another with these words. What words? The words that we just went through. You should find a comfort there of what's going on in chapter 4. No matter what you're going through, doesn't matter what it is, health, wealth or lack of, whatever it is that's going on in your heart, your lives, we are to be comforted and comfort one another with these words. Because these words are truth. They're eternal life. They're Jesus' words given to Paul to a church back in Thessalonica, but also to a church today in Janesburg, to a church in China, to believers in Russia. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. He's not done with us. Keep looking up. Be sharp. We encourage you. The scriptures encourage you. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you. Let